Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you grateful that you bless us with so many good gifts. I pray that you would be with us now in a very special way, Lord, as we open your word, as we seek to, to hear your voice speaking to our hearts, to our very being. May our eyes be open, may our hearts be open. Soften them, Lord, if they are hardened, that we may do your will and that we may reap the joy and the benefits that come from doing so. I pray, Lord, give us wisdom in all things in our life and, and be with us now. We thank you for hearing and answering our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. So the title of my sermon is Journey to the Unknown. Um, I don't intend to offend any Texans out there uh, thinking, what do you mean, Texas is known? They're probably thinking, you bet it's known. Uh, it's unknown to me. <laughs> I've spent hardly any time there, um, but I look forward to getting to know it. I hear only good things about it. But I want to take a look at a Bible character uh, as our scripture reading gave away the story of Abram and how his was very much a journey of the unknown as well. And to a great degree, I think God calls each and every one of us to a journey where we don't know what the end is going to be. So to a great degree, it is even unknown to us. But we trust in the one who is leading us. Amen? So let me ask you this. Well, let's go a little bit into the background of the story. We know typically the story we start reading from chapter 12, but it's the last part of chapter 11 that gives us a few insights, a few hints into what is going on in the life of Abram and his family. And we have there, beginning from verse 27 of chapter 11, that Terah, Abram's father, has three sons. He begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran begot Lot. This was Abram's nephew who goes with him on this journey. And Haran died before his father Terah in his native land in Ur, Ur of the Chaldees. Or Chaldeans, some will say, but Chaldees. Um, so it seems that for Lot, Abram was probably more of a father figure for him seeing that his father died early on. At least we have this there. Then we continue reading, and it talks about how Abram and Nahor took wives. Uh, it's important to note that even before the story begins, the call of Abraham proper, we might say, as God comes to him and it's written down, that it's mentioned in verse 30 that Sarah was, Sarai was barren. She had no children. I know you all know this, but keep this in the back of your mind. Pretend like you're, you're hearing this story for the first time. And it's very interesting that as the story is introducing the characters, Moses is sure to explain to the reader, just know Sarah has no children. Okay? And then we keep going. And it says here that, And Terah took his, I'm reading verse 31 now, and Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife, and they went out with them from Ur of the Chaldees to go to the land of where? Canaan. And they came to Haran and dwelt there. So the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. So they evidently begin the journey while Abram's father, Terah, is still alive. And notice that Terah, it says, is said to have taken Abram with him and takes Sarah and takes, uh, I guess a lot isn't mentioned there, but in verse 5, you will see that after Terah dies, Abram takes Sarah, his wife, and Lot is mentioned, 
and everyone else who came with him. Because this call, when Abraham left, was not just to Abraham and his immediate family, but was for everyone who wanted to go where God was leading. I think that's important to note, that when Abram left, it wasn't just five to ten of them that left. It was hundreds. Some scholars would even say it was probably closer to, to a thousand people, particularly if you take the incident in a couple of chapters, where is it there, in, in chapter 14, about when Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot are taken, and Abraham goes and he takes his 318 trained servants. These are the male figures who are, who are able to fight and ready for war. So there were probably males that were younger, that were still children, maybe males that were older, that couldn't go out to war. And then you include all the wives and all the daughters that would be in that group. It's not hard to conceive that this is quite a group that is moving out towards the land of Canaan. Evidently, uh, the land of Canaan is written there for your benefit, because you as the reader know the end of the story. You know the land which is promised to Abram. Moses knows this, but did Abram know this? Did he? No. We know this because when we come to the actual call that God gave to Abram, it says that the Lord said to Abram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. He doesn't say to the land of Canaan. He could have. Why didn't God do that? Was Canaan unfamiliar to Abram? I think Canaan was familiar to Abram, but God wanted to make sure that through this journey, he is continually depending upon him. So I won't tell you the destination yet. When you get there, I'll show it to you. That's what I promise. But you have to trust in me in the meantime. Evidently, the life of Abram must have been quite unique given that the call comes to Abram, but as we know from the story just earlier, Terah lives with him. That's his dad, his father. Now, how many of you sons here, when you were younger, could go to your dad and say, hey, dad, I feel like God is leading me to do this. And he says, yeah, sure. In fact, I'll come with you. And what is being proposed is so, I mean, preposterous is probably a word, but it doesn't make any logical sense. You're established in Ur of the Chaldees. You have to sell Lots of, anyway, I'm getting too ahead of the story. Let, let's get to what God is asking Abram to do. But I want you to notice that Abram's life is unique. Evidently, his desire to follow God, to be different, is already something which can be seen from his, at least a few of his immediate family members. There's something about Abram where they can sense that God is moving and working in his life so that when he comes and he says, God is asking me to do something, they say, we believe you. Not, are you insane or are you crazy? But we believe you, even though others may think you're insane or crazy. And they said, in fact, we believe you so much, we want to sell everything we have and we want to go with you. Keep that also in the back of your minds. And so now we get to the first part of the story, uh, proper as it were, where God comes, it says, the Lord said to Abram, he comes to him and he speaks to him and he says, get out of your country and from your family and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. So question, the question I want you to keep in the back of your minds as we go through the story of Abram is this. Why did Abram have to leave? Why did he have to leave Ur of the Chaldees to the land that God was going to show him? 
Now tell me some of your initial, your initial reasons. And we've talked about this before, so I mean, this should not be completely unfamiliar to you. So what are some of the reasons that you think God may have asked them to leave? Speak up a little bit if you're further back. If you're at the front, it's easier. Idolatry. Okay, so his family was surrounded by idolatry. And God evidently doesn't want the man whom he's selecting for a special purpose to be surrounded by all of that influence. Maybe not only for Abram's sake, but for whatever his progeny might be, right? His descendants. And we find, unfortunately, because of their time spent even in Egypt, that this is something that the children of Israel fluctuated and, and fought against over and over again, right? The turn to God, and then the turn to idolatry, and then the turn to God, and then the turn to idolatry. And it seems it goes up and down until finally God basically has to abandon them completely, and they, are, they go into captivity. But very good reason. What else? What might be some of the other reasons that God is asking Abram to leave? Yes. Okay, so God wants to give him something, and the question is, can God give him what he wants to give him in the place where he's at? Evidently, God sees that he cannot, that the blessings he wants to give him, that the land he wants to give him can't be right there. Very good. What else? Yes. So people, I'm trying to understand now, people looked bad upon those who were righteous? Oh, I see. Their pride was very high. I see, yes. And God needs humble people, not proud people, to be going out and to be saying, well, we know everything. We have everything figured out, right? Any other reasons? I don't want to cut it short. Yes. Okay, so again, mentioning from the idolatry, not just being away from idolatry, but being surrounded by an environment where it's not just that idolatry is external, but notice that he's asking him to even leave his familial relations, his friends, his family that are going down the wrong path. Abraham, I need you for something special, and you can't do this at the same time while keeping connections with these kinds of people. I still love them. I still want to work in their lives and draw them back to me, but I have something different that I want you to do. And you have to leave them with me. God was not just abandoning them. I don't, I don't want anyone to get the wrong idea. God was still working with the Chaldeans even after Abraham left or Abram left. But God had something distinct and special in store for Abram as we will find. Now, let me ask you this. What are the two things that God asked Abram to leave? I just read them. The first one was... Is the first one that? Get out of your country. So the place, and the second one was family. When I read this, I'm not just thinking about what God is asking, but what is God leaving out? God asked Abraham to leave the place and leave the familial connections, but he did not ask Abram to leave his wealth behind. In fact, if we read, when Abraham leaves, he takes everything with him. And the Bible describes Abraham as a very rich, a very wealthy man. The, the amount of flocks that he had, the servants, in fact, he and his nephew Lot are so wealthy that there become some disputes and they have to separate ways because of all the wealth 
that they have accumulated evidently, and this is, this is a lesson I'm trying to draw out because it's, not, it's important for us to read the stories of the Bible to understand what's going on in their lives, but if that's all we do, we have failed miserably at studying the Bible. We must, once we understand what is going through the Bible character's life, say, how can this apply to me? What might I be going through that is similar? What might God be leading me to do? And maybe he's not asking me to leave the country. Maybe the, the reason God asked Abram to leave the country and the familiar relations is because he knew Abraham had the kind of heart that he would eventually succumb. But wealth wasn't a hindrance to him. Fast forward to the New Testament, when the rich young ruler comes to Jesus, what does Jesus tell him? Go and sell everything you have. Evidently, wealth was a trap for this rich young ruler. So God evidently brings it out and says, for you, yes, wealth is your stumbling block. You need to remove it. But it's not the case for everyone. So my question to you is, my question to me is, what is my stumbling block? Is God asking me to leave a place? Is he asking me to maybe take away some connections which are bad for me in my life? Maybe he's not asking me to give up everything right now. He probably just wants me to take one step, as he usually does. But this is an important question for us to ask. There are many things which Abram took with him on this journey, but the two things he had to leave behind was the country and the family. Hard decisions to make. People you love and the place you grew up. Uh, most people, I would say, maybe not all, but most people have very fond memories of when you were little children where you grew up. You, you know the certain place, the certain streets you used to walk along. You can close your eyes and you can even smell the smells that you could, that you smelt as you walked by some of those streets, perhaps. The trees you used to climb or the playgrounds you used to go to. We typically have very fond memories of our childhood. And God said to Abram, leave all of that behind. And so far as we know, never go back. That's hard, not even to go to visit. So let's continue reading the story. Get out of your country and leave your family. And I want to give you something. Now, as we read, let's note the things that God wants to give. To a land that I will show you. So he evidently wants to give Abram a place, land. He says, I will make you a great what? nation. So he wants to give him descendants. I'll get to that. I'll get back to that. And then it says, and I want to, I will bless you and make your name great. So a good name, blessings, we could add to that. And you will be or shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. And then there's this little clause at the end. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And many, many scholars agree that this is the promise, if not all scholars who, who are reading this, hear in this line the hints that what God is promising to Abram is the promise he made all the way back to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. This is the messianic line. So the Messiah, the Redeemer, was going to come through Adam and Eve. But how many of us are descendants of Adam and Eve? All of us. So it's very general to say that, yeah, there's going to be someone. But then you have the flood take place, and all of a sudden, the Messiah, the Redeemer, must come through Noah's line. But then Noah's line starts branching out, and now we get to the stage where God is coming to Abraham. He's saying, it's going to be through you, through your line. God is getting more as, as humanity multiplies and gets larger. God is making sure that he's keeping the hope alive that a Messiah is coming. 
And he speaks to Abraham in a sense that I want to give you land. I want to give you descendants. In fact, I want to make you a great nation. I will give you so many blessings that your name will be great. And by the way, it is through you that the whole earth will be blessed, indicating that the Redeemer that was to be sent was going to come through Abraham's line. Beautiful, beautiful promises. Now, let's go back to, to uh, we talked about the, the influence of family and friends in, in, a, in a kind of uh, uh, short manner, saying that this was something that Abraham had to leave behind. God wanted an environment where he could teach Abraham about himself without any distractions and temptations. And this is why for Abraham, or Abram, at least initially, the place and the associations were perhaps his weak point. Where Abraham was comfortable and where everything was familiar, God could not do with Abram what he needed to do. So he asked him to leave that behind. The other stuff, you can take that with you. No worries. What is it that God is trying to teach us? Is there anything in our life that is thwarting us, that is breaking that relationship to the certain extent that there may be something that God wants to do in our lives, but he cannot because we are unwilling to permit him to work in that area? That's the question I'm asking myself, and I hope that you will ask yourself as well. Notice also that in leaving things behind, Abraham made quite, this was not just one little step for Abram. Uh, I was, when I took a class in the seminary on archaeology, I was really, really surprised by how much archaeology has been done in ancient Mesopotamia. And, you know, we tend to, I'm not sure if it's like the remnants of the evolutionary theory in the back of our minds, which I don't support, but the notion that people who lived long ago, they lived very primitively. Right, and we are very advanced because we have flushing toilets and, you know, stainless steel knives. Um, this makes us advanced, you know, and we could add more to that, I'm sure. But what I was surprised about was when we did archaeology, even at the time of Abraham, which is not that long after the flood, they already have two-story houses. They have houses that are not built like just with mud, but mud brick, bricks that have been, you know, solidified in, in, in the sun and then in ovens if need be. They had roofs which collected water. They actually had plumbing, a rudimentary form of plumbing, pro probably not as fancy as our flushing toilet, but a way in which to kind of clean out the house and, and, and flush waste and, and a, a sort of aqueduct system. They had houses that were large, living rooms, kitchens, pantries, much like we would have bedrooms. Uh, multiple, and then they had two stories in their homes. Uh, Abraham's leaving all of that to go and live in what? A tent? Now, I love camping, but you know, a week, two weeks of camping, you start to miss the toilet and you start to miss the shower, and especially depending where you're going camping. If the water to get clean is cold, whew, a nice hot shower seems really nice. Abram, leave all of that behind. Live in a tent. Now, question... How old was Abram when God asked him to leave again? 75. How long did Abram live? 175. And so far as I know, at least from what Scripture tells us, the only time where Abram or his, really his descendants actually started living in more permanent dwellings is when they went to Egypt during the famine and Joseph was then prime minister, as it were, of Egypt. They settled in the land, they built houses, 
Joseph told them the famine is going to last for quite a while, and they stopped living, I believe, in tents. Um, so much so that they got accustomed to that life so that when God asked them to leave, they grumbled throughout the wilderness, right? They grumbled that they lost their food, that all they had to eat was manna, that they didn't have the kind of aqueduct systems and the kind of water that they, that they used to have back in Egypt. But Abraham lives and for a hundred leaves and for a hundred years he lives in a tent and he doesn't say a word. He's wealthy, but he says, if God wants me to live in a tent, I'm happy to live in a tent. I'm just trying to give you the distinction. We like our houses. They are, they are blessings. But should God be asking us to do something drastic? Are we ready? Are we willing? God wanted to give him something. We mentioned the land, the descendants, the blessings. One of the questions I asked myself, and I know I've, I've alluded to that the specificness of Abram's call means that God could, wanted to do something for him that he evidently could not do in Ur of the Chaldees. But the more I thought about it, the more I wondered, why couldn't he? Think about it, land. Is there no land outside of Ur? Like, why didn't God just ask him, hey, just move one town over? There's lots of land out there. It's not like the world is so densely populated as it is today. God could have given him any piece of land. Why did it have to be Canaan? And we could come up with multiple reasons why, and that's almost another sermon on its own. So I know that there are good reasons out there. There are many. Uh, I don't want to focus on that in this, in this, uh, in this sermon. But evidently, there, there were some reasons, which is why God was asking him. But I'm thinking God could have given him a descendants. Like, is there something supernatural about having children in Canaan that, that he, you know, did, was everyone childless in Ur of the Chaldees? If God wanted to, could not God have given Sarah and Abram a child in Ur of the Chaldees? Sure. Could God not bless Abram? It seems the fact that he's leaving with so many people and with so much wealth that God was evidently even blessing him even in Ur of the Chaldees. So what are these things that God wants to give him that he can't give him right there? I, I think that this is, this is leading to the real reason why God wanted Abram to leave, and that is because he wanted to train or transform Abram. He wanted to do something in Abram's life, and he could not do that where Abram was with the connections Abram had. Let's go to your bulletins. You have this quote in your bulletin, and I want to read it out loud here. Uh, Patriarchs and Prophets chapter 126. She writes here, in order that God might qualify him from the, for the great work as the keeper of the sacred oracles. What's, what are the sacred oracles? The Bible. So God wants to use Abram and his descendants to retain a knowledge of the true God amidst a world that is falling deeply, deeply, and quickly, quickly into idolatry. He needs a group that's going to stay faithful and that's going to have a true knowledge of God. And so when you look at the Bible, with very few exceptions, you have Nebuchadnezzar who wrote one chapter of Scripture. But the, the rest of the Old Testament is written by Israelites, descendants of Abram, who had a close walk with God, who God used as prophets to record Scripture and preserve it for you and me today. Even when you go to the New Testament, most of the writers there, except for very few, uh, again, 
uh, Hebrews, still Israelites. So, sorry, I didn't finish the rest of it. I just got stuck here on the sacred oracles. Abraham must be separated from the associations of his early life. The influence of kindred and friends would interfere with the training which the Lord purposed to give his servant. Now that Abraham was in a special sense connected with heaven, he must dwell among strangers. His character must be peculiar, differing from all the world. He could not even explain his course of action so as to be understood by his friends. Spiritual things are spiritually discerned and his motives and actions were not comprehended by his idolatrous kindred. Just imagine, it's hard enough to leave family. It's hard enough to, to leave the place where you grew up. But as you leave, people misunderstand you and don't understand why you're leaving. And yet Abram goes anyway. That's hard. Not only are you lowering your standard of living by living in a tent. And when they ask you, hey, where are you going? Well, I don't know. <laughs> when I get there, I'll know. God will show it to me, but I, I can't tell you right now. Makes logical sense, right? God is very amazing in the way that he works, right? So God evidently wants to transform and train Abram, and he knows that as long as Abraham, I'm going to go back and forth between Abram and Abraham, that while he is comfortable and everything is fine, God cannot really do the the rigorous training, the tests and the trials that he wants to put him through to make him into the person that he would have him to be. And I think this is the key reason why he had to leave because tests and trials are virtually never, they very, very rarely happen at a time when we are comfortable. They are always taking place when things go wrong, things are bad, when things are difficult. That's when we learn new skills. You know, when, when you have an exam in a class, that makes you study. When you have a passion, that makes you study. I get to figure out how to fix this thing on my car. It's not working. And until you're satisfied with that, you keep watching videos, reading, asking friends, take it to a mechanic. Oh, finally, you know, now it works the way it's supposed to work. Go to uh, Matthew chapter 21 in the New Testament. There's an interesting story here, a parable, which Jesus is sharing. Matthew chapter 21 uh, verses 28, beginning from verse 28. And it reads like this. But what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterward he regretted it and went. Then, came this, then he came to the second and said likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir. But he did not. Which of the two did the will of his father? And those who were listening said to him, the first. Jesus said to them, Surely I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe him. Notice the judgment which Jesus is giving to those who are still unsure if Jesus is the one. He says, Pardon me. He says, tax collectors and harlots are entering the kingdom before you. Why? Because they sense their need. They have a difficult time in life, and you think life is easy because you think you have everything and have need of nothing. Isn't there 
a Bible passage somewhere, Revelation 3, maybe, about the church of Laodicea that describes a group, a church, that feels as though they have need of nothing because they're very wealthy, but they don't know that they're blind, poor, wretched, miserable, naked. Could it be that we are maybe too comfortable in the way that we live our lives today, that God doesn't have an opportunity to work? And maybe God is wanting to make us just a little bit uncomfortable. Maybe for those of us who are used to the little bit uncomfortable, maybe he wants to make you a lot uncomfortable because he still wants to teach you something. We often speak about how it is possible to rob God through tithes, right? Malachi chapter 3, we talk about that. But the Bible also says that we can be robbed ourselves and we can rob, let's just say robbed ourselves, that there is more to robbing God than just by monetary or wealthy means. Let's go to Leviticus chapter 26. The book of Leviticus, and this is the same Bible writer here in Genesis, Moses, writing, Leviticus 26, verse 22. Now, this is in a passage where God is promising blessings if they should obey, but if they should form idols and follow after idol worship, and if they should abandon God, then God cannot bless, and retribution will be swift to follow. And notice what it says in verse 22. God says, I will also send wild beasts among you, which shall rob you of your children. Destroy your livestock and make you few in number, and your highways shall be desolate. Now, evidently, the livestock and the few in number and the highways being desolate has to do with monetary value. But children, what price do you give to a child? I would not sell Sophie to anyone, doesn't matter who came to me, doesn't matter what price tag. The only one I would give her to is Jesus himself, because he's the one who made her in the first place. Every parent knows this of a child, that their child is not worth it, but you can be robbed of something which doesn't have a price tag. What about if we go to the New Testament? Let's go to the Gospel of John, chapter 10. The Gospel of John, chapter 10, just to illustrate this point that there's more to just monetary value of things which can be robbed. I'm just going to start from verse 1 here. John, chapter 10, verse 1. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. And then it continues on from verse 7, and Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me, claiming to be the Messiah, claiming to be the Redeemer, the Promised One, they are all thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to what? Steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly." Now, this text could be, again, another sermon in and of itself, but the short of it is that the Greek word used there for life is not the Greek word used for biological life, right? That your heart is pumping, that your organs are functioning, functioning optimally. You know, someone in a coma is alive. The heart is beating, but they don't have life. You know, they can't see the sunset. They're not listening to music. They're not having the connections and the relationships which make life so which make life life. 
I mean, life would be boring if we just, you know, eat, I'm eating this to just live. But we don't do that, right? We try to create, make creative ways to eat so that it's enjoyable, so that it smells good. So, and we like to eat with friends and with family if we can and, and socialize. This is important because all of these things make up life, not just your heart beating. And this notion that Jesus has come to give us life is not merely biological life. God wants you to live a long time, sure, but he's more interested in the quality of the life you're going to live in the hope and trust and joy that you can have while you go through life rather than the fear and despair and dread which many people face. And, God, and Jesus here is saying, I have come to give life abundantly, but if you follow someone else, and if you don't follow God's will and God's voice falling to you, then you're actually following the thief and the robber, and they're coming to take something away from you which God wants to give you. So you can be robbed from something that God wants to give you because you're unwilling to follow God. Could it be that we are robbing God of something because we are unwilling to follow God? And I would submit to you, yes, this is true. Isn't it interesting? I mean, God is so amazing and so logical, right? I say this a bit, God is logical. I mean, he's a master mathematician and and everything adds up correctly in his book. But think of this. What does God want to do with Abram? He wants to make him a great nation. So it makes all the sense in the world to, to, if you want a nation, don't go to already existing nations. Go to a man who's married to one woman who can't have kids. That makes all the sense in the world. And in the next generation, right, Isaac is finally born. We have Ishmael when Abraham tries to kind of help God with his plans. And God says, I don't need help. Thank you very much. Uh, Isaac is finally born, and, and Isaac marries Rebekah, and can Rebekah have children? The Bible says he pleads with God, and God opens her womb, and after that, she has how many children? Two children. And Esau, you know, kind of went his own way. So after two generations of God calling Abram out, he has Jacob, who has issues of his own. So he's still down to one person. God's timing is great, right? God's ways are perfect, right? It doesn't always appear that way to the human eye. It doesn't make sense to the human eye. Why would you pick a barren woman and this man's family to start the nation on earth, you know, that you want to have? It doesn't make sense. When God wants someone to go to Pharaoh, what does Moses say to God? I can't speak. And God says, well, who made man's tongue? I don't care if you can't speak. You know, we often think, maybe God is speaking to me when he asks me to do something I know I can do or something I'm comfortable with. You can't read the Bible and come to that conclusion. In fact, when you feel that God is leading you to do something that seems impossible to you, you're probably 99% sure that God is asking you to do it. Because the fact that you can't do it on your own means what? I must ask Jesus to help me. I must be dependent upon him every single day. And that's what Abram needed to do. That's what Abram needed to have in his life. Notice in another sense here that not only can we rob God in terms of not returning our tithe to him, but can we rob God by the service due to him or by the influence that we have, by when we don't choose to use our influence in perhaps the best way or in the correct way, but we stay quiet. We don't want to rock the boat. not saying we should always rock the boat, but... There's a kind way to share the truth and there's a rude way to, to share the truth. Let's do it the kind way, but sometimes we say, well, maybe I'll just stay quiet now and not say anything. 
when God would have us to speak. We rob God not only of the service that is due to him, but we rob him, notice this point, that when we resist his working in our lives, we prevent him from making us into the person that he would have us to be. And I think this is probably the point I want you to remember more than anything else in this entire sermon. If you leave, you'll, you'll no doubt forget everything. But don't forget this point, please. That in hearing God's will and resisting that, we're not just robbing God of the service that God wants to, wants to use us for, that is to be a blessing to others, but we ourselves miss out on becoming a better man, on becoming a better woman, on becoming a better child. Because we are thwarting God. We're not allowing Him to work in the way that He needs to work. Take, for example, the issue of tithe, since we've talked about it. The issue of tithe, you know, why do we return our tithe to God? Is it just because the Bible says we need to return a tithe to God? I mean, yes, the doing of the returning is important. I don't want to say that that's not important. But God doesn't want you just to be like, here, I'm doing it because I have to. Is that what God wants? What does the Bible say? God loves a what kind of giver? Cheerful giver. Does someone go from being very not wanting to part with their money to being a cheerful giver overnight? Could it be that there's a process that needs to take place? Could it be that there's a journey that God wants to take us on so that we can become more generous people? And maybe his way of doing so is by saying, start by returning only 10%. Really, 100% is mine because I'm the one who gives you every breath you take. But I'm only asking for one-tenth. Let's start there. And of course, God wants us to give even more than 10%. Don't feel like you're giving your 10% and that's it. The Bible is very clear that we should be doing more, but start somewhere. God wants to take you on a journey and he needs you to cooperate with him. So evidently, it's not just the returning of the tithe, which is important, but note this, it's what the returning of the tithe does in us that is just as important, maybe even more important. So you see, when we talk about the Ten Commandments or anything that God is asking us to do, is it that we're doing it just to please God? Yes, but is it also because in doing so, we ourselves are becoming better people, happier people, people with more joy? And are not these things, as we go about obeying and doing, worth something? That we are being changed more and more into His image. Is that not worth something? Is that not worth me saying, I really like this, but I know it's not good for me. I will trust God and I will do without so that when I look back a year from now, maybe five years from now, maybe 10 years from now, I am someone better than I was 10 years ago. I think that's what God wants for each and every one of us, which leads me to the main, you know, to, to the main uh, at least lesson that I get from when I read this passage of God's call is that God doesn't need Abram. God needs Abraham. God needs the, the man who's willing to give the thing he loves most his only son, who he had to wait for 25 years for him to come. God needs him to be willing to sacrifice him, but Abram at 75 was not ready. He's not ready. So God calls him out, and God works with him, and Abraham fails time and time again. And God doesn't say, well, he failed, that's it. He goes to Egypt. He essentially tells his wife to say a half-truth, which is a whole lie, 
Amazingly, his life is preserved. Everyone is preserved. In fact, he leaves and Pharaoh kind of gave him gifts. He just wanted him out of there because God was plaguing his home. Kind of a, a snippet of what happens later when the children of Israel leave Egypt, right? They just take whatever you want, just get out of here. We don't want you here anymore. But this notion that God doesn't need Abram, he needs Abraham, but Abraham isn't Abraham yet. But God sees us for what we can be before we actually are. And God is patient and kind enough with each and every one of us that even when we fail, he says, it's not okay that you failed, but I'm still here. If you're still willing to turn back, if you're still willing to work with, with me, I'm definitely willing to work with you. And God comes to Abraham many times and reassures him, you will be great. Your stars will be, you know, your children will be as the stars in the sky, as the sand in the sea. He makes covenants with him. He's constantly encouraging Abraham and reassuring him during the 25 years until finally one part of the promise is fulfilled. Notice that Abraham dies and he still doesn't have the land. When he finally gets to the land, God promises him, by the way, your descendants will have this land. Well, thank you very much. So I gave up my place to live in a tent and now I know I'm going to have to stay there. No complaint from Abraham. It was enough that his descendants would have it. That's as though he had received it himself. God needs him to change. In fact, the beautiful thing about this story, which illustrates the point of how God often sees us for what we can be before we see it ourselves, before we are even ready ourselves, is the fact that God renames Abram and Sarai to Abraham and Sarah in chapter 17, indicating that they will be, you know, this, this father, this mother of a great nation. But it's five chapters later, four or five chapters later in chapter 21, where finally Isaac is born. So God is renaming them before the child of promise is even given, indicating how much, how God sees us, how God saw Abram. I see you as the father of many, even though when Abram died, he was probably not the father of that many. I mean, we could probably count them. So God needed Abram to be something more than what he currently was. The call of Abram was really the call to leave behind the familiar and the comfortable for something which is unknown and uncomfortable. We hate that feeling. I hate that feeling, especially now that I'm moving. It's like, what is Texas like? You know, what am I going to be doing? There are so many unknown questions which at times stress me. At other times, I'm like, I can't stress about the things I can't control, right? So I leave that to God and I do the part that I can, which is to put stuff in boxes right now and get ready for the move. I mean, God provides every step of the way. And I know that when I'm hungry, God will feed me. When I'm thirsty, God will give me water to drink. And if that's all I have for, for as long as I live, that will be enough. It has to be enough. And we have to be ready that that will be enough. So Abraham not only needs to become more for God's sake, because God wants to use him. But note this, Abraham needs to become more for his own sake. In other words, Abraham needs to become a better man because the mission that, you know, Abraham will feel better about himself. Don't you like it when you learn a new skill, even if it was hard to learn it? Don't you feel good when you graduate or when you, whatever it is, when you complete something that you worked on, even if you're cooking, you like chopping, you you know, one of those really involved recipes that you can't throw in. It's a special event and you spend all, you know, two days preparing for Thanksgiving. But isn't it worth it at the end? You feel good, like, oh, I was able to do something. 
The same thing happens when we cooperate with God. We may not feel it in the moment, but later we will feel that feeling of accomplishment, like, I'm so glad I followed God rather than resisting Him. You see, I think many times, and I know when I was younger, I definitely thought this, you know, as an example, the church has a work bee. Well, I can do a favor to the church. I can go and help them out. Or, or maybe, perhaps even worse, I can do God a favor. When in reality, doing service for God, wherever it may be, is actually doing ourselves the favor. We are the ones who miss out on becoming more capable more like Jesus when, we, we, when Jesus asks us to serve and we say, no, I don't want to, or not right now, I'm too busy, or whatever our good excuses may be and the list is very long. It doesn't work that way. You see, there is no Abraham without the journey. If Abram said, thank you for the call, I feel very honored that you would consider me, that you want to give me all this land, that you want to make me great, that you want to bless me, and even that the Messiah might come through my seed, but I don't want to leave my home. Then Abram just remains Abram in Ur of the Chaldees. And he would be just like so many that we maybe read in the Bible and there's one name and we never hear about him again. Oh, so-and-so had this many children, his children were so-so, and nothing's mentioned about them. But because Abram said, I don't like this, but I'm going, we have a story. We have a journey. What will your story be? What will your journey be? That depends on you. That depends on the steps that you're willing to take. That depends on how much time you are willing to spend in the word and praying and asking your knees, Lord, please make it known to me what you want me to do. It depends on how uncomfortable you're willing to be. And as I said, I'm grateful to God that when he first comes to us, he never asks us to make giant leaps and runs. He asks us to take a few steps. And then he asks us to walk with him. And after we're walking with him, then he might ask us, hey, we need to run now. Sometimes we think we walk with God and that's all he will require of us. There might be sometimes he wants us to run, to jump, to leap. Are we willing? Are we ready? That's what we have to ask ourselves today. I want to end by reading just two more quotes here also from patriarchs and prophets, but it's not in your bulletin. She writes here, many are still tested as was Abraham. They do not hear the voice of God speaking directly from the heavens, but he calls them by the teachings of his word and the events of his providence. They may be required to abandon a career that promises wealth and honor, to leave congenial and profitable associations and separate from kindred to enter upon what appears to be only a path of self-denial, hardship, and sacrifice. God has a work for them to do, but a life of ease and the influence of friends and kindred would hinder the development of the very traits essential for its accomplishment. So God does have a mission for you, and you probably feel like you can't do it, and you're probably right. Very comforting, right? It is, because God says, but I can make you be able to, if you'll let me. It's not going to be very pleasant in the meantime. Maybe it's uncomfortable in the short term, but one day you will shine like a gemstone, like a piece of gold that is refined in the furnace, and you will shine brighter than you ever thought you could. Notice this last quote here. He sees that some have powers which may be used in the advancement of his work. 
and he puts these persons upon trial. In his providence, he brings them into positions that test their character and reveal defects and weaknesses that may be hidden from their own knowledge. He gives them opportunity to correct these defects, to fit themselves for his service. He shows them their own weaknesses and teaches them to lean upon him, who is their only help and safeguard. Thus, his object is attained. They are educated, trained, and disciplined, prepared to fulfill the grand purpose for which their powers were given them. When God calls them to action, they are ready, and heavenly angels can unite with them in the work to be accomplished on the earth. Isn't that what you want for your life? I know that's what I want for my life. To be ready when God tells me, Andy, jump, jump. Andy, take a step here. I take a step here. Andy, I need you to do this. I won't tell you what's going to happen, but do it. (laughs) Please tell me what will happen, but I understand. God constantly wants us to learn the lesson of dependence and trust in him. The question is always, are we willing to take that step? God won't force us. And the sad part is, as we know from many stories in the Bible, and even in Ellen White's life, is that if we refuse, God will find someone else. Ellen White wasn't the first person that God came to. To say, I have a message, I need you to tell the world. But the first one said no. Second one said no. Or at least did it, but only limited. And finally he says, I'll use the person that no one will expect and that is completely incapable, as tends to be his trend. So if you're feeling incapable, you're in good company. Heaven's going to be filled of incapable people who did impossible things just because Jesus was with them. In fact, that is going to be the story of heaven. What did God do for you? Not what did you do? How did you enjoy life on earth or whatever? It's always going to be, what has God done for you? Because everyone knows we can do nothing without him. So for those of you who are on the journey, and I know many of you sitting here, praise the Lord, maybe all of you to some degree have started this journey. I hope you have. Because if you have, you've started to reap the benefits and you, you can already start to look back and say, wow, I'm so glad I made those choices because I would not be where I am now if I didn't do that then. But for those of you who might still be in the beginning stages or for those of you who may have gone and maybe you're in a bit of a blip, I'm appealing to you, rededicate your life to God. Renew that trust in him as you once trusted him before and follow him into the unknown. Not always a pleasant place to be, but is always the safest place to be if Jesus is there. Let's stand as we conclude with our closing song, uh, number 326, Open My Eyes That I May See.